0: Good morning, guys. How are we? How's the morale after after yesterday? Go, frogs! Amen. There we go. Uh, if some if an update happens at some point, you can just number three. No way! Woo! <laughs> that is awesome. Okay. There we go. It's gonna be good. No. <laughs> Man, well guys, I'm so excited to be here with you this morning. That That is incredible news. Um, if I haven't had the pleasure of getting to meet you yet, my name is Asher Fraley. Like Nathan and Lauren said, I get the privilege of getting to work on staff here at the PAC with that amazing crew. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to this morning, to opening up God's Word alongside of you guys and gleaning what the Holy Spirit has for us today. If, if you've been with us throughout the semester, we've been going through the book of Galatians, and um, we're kind of on the home stretch a little bit. We've got this week, and then Ben is capping off the series next week. That's, that's all that's left. Today we're going to be in chapter 6, Galatians 6, verses 1 through 10. So if you've got a copy of the scriptures with you, I want to invite you to turn there with me. That's where we're going to be camping out for the majority of our time. A- and while you're turning there, I want to just preview a little bit of, of where we're going this morning. Um, it's, it's been a little bit since our last message in Galatians. It's four weeks ago now that Nathan covered the second half of chapter five. A- and, and in that portion of scripture, Paul lays out these two kind of contrasting lifestyles, two opposing camps. And on one side, he, he writes this list and he calls it the fruit of the flesh. This is the fruit of the flesh. And then he he contrasts that with the fruit of the spirit on this side. And the idea is, hey, I want you to be walking in the spirit. And if you're walking, keeping in step with the spirit, this is going to be what's produced in your life. And, and so what he examined there is the spirit-filled individual. And now this morning in, in chapter 6, Paul is going to zoom out one degree. And he's going to look at the spirit-filled individual. Community, And so that's where we're going. And even just to kind of help guide our conversation, I just want to ask the question, have this in your mind. Think about this as we're dialoguing today. What do you think the spirit-filled community looks like? What comes into your mind? Is it, you know, church on Sunday morning? Kind of like what's going on right here. Uh, maybe it's, you know, a group of friends hanging out. Maybe it's just gathering together of like-minded believers. Really could be any number of things. Well, this morning, Paul Paul is going to let us peer behind the veil at what the Spirit-filled community really is. Is And he's going to challenge us in three specific ways. So we're going to look at three attributes of the Spirit-filled community, and then we're going to close our time by looking at a final warning that he gives us and a final encouragement. So that's where we're going. Let's go ahead and jump into the text. Galatians 6, starting in verse 1. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption to get into. We got a lot of ground to cover, so we're gonna jump right in. Remember, we're looking at three attributes of the spirit-filled community. Attribute number one, the spirit-filled community doesn't shy away from loving confrontation. They don't shy away from loving confrontation. Let's, Let's read the text again, starting in verse one. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So kind of starting our dialogue, what does Paul mean by caught in any transgression? What comes into your mind when you're thinking that? Well, what Paul, what Paul doesn't mean, what he's not referring to, is the idea of like catching someone in the act. He's not referring to some kind of moral police, you know, kind of snooping around trying to see who's messing up. That's not it at all. Rather, the the concept that Paul is trying to convey here is more along the lines of someone quite literally being caught, trapped, entangled in sin. You know, if you're if you're trapped in something, you can't get out of it on your own. You're you're trying to get out of it and you and you can't. And so what he's referring to is more of a ongoing cyclical pattern of sin that you observe where your friend is caught, entangled. And and it's probably not all the time, but I would even guess that more often than not, they probably aren't even aware of it. They, they might not even be aware of it. Or maybe they just don't even think that whatever it is, whatever the transgression is, is uh, holding them back from further intimacy with God. Maybe they don't think, see it as a transgression. Just kinda a few examples to put us all on the same page here. Maybe you've got a friend who, you know, when you're around them, they just continually gossip about other people. You know, just talking bad about other people. Maybe it's a group who, when they get together, the, the, the comments and the joking just starts to go in a direction that doesn't honor God, doesn't honor other people. Maybe it's a friend who was wronged at some point back uh, in their life and they've just been holding on to unforgiveness, holding on to bitterness. I just can't, what they did was unforgivable. I can't let it go. This, this list, you know, we've pulled three examples here. This list could literally go on and on. It's, it's quite literally infinite. But I want to stop us right here because, you see, Paul, throughout this passage, he's giving a warning to the readers, a warning to, to us. But rather than what you might think, the warning is not to the one who is actively participating in sin. Rather, the warning is for the one who is going to be helping That person. It's for the community around them. And so let's move on in the text and we'll get a glimpse as to why Paul is warning us. Looking again at verse one, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, and what he means by spiritual here, it's not some kind of, you know, elite, mature, kind of upper echelon, varsity Christian, rather, kind of a more apt. Example of what he's referring to is you who are spirit-filled or you who have the Holy Spirit in you. He's just finished talking about the fruit of the Spirit and hey, keep in step with the Spirit. And so his idea is you who are keeping in step with the Spirit, which means that none of us can try to dodge this command and say, well, it's not my job. It's actually his job. He's more spiritual. It's her job. They're the one who, they're more along in their faith no, no, no. This responsibility, this command is for all of us. Let's continue on. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So what does Paul say the end goal is of this kind of confrontation? It's restoration, right? It's to restore them. And if we just, if we just pause here for a second, this is... Radically countercultural to the current norms of our society today. I mean, cutting-edge trends, you know, cancel culture would say, "Hey, if someone sins against you, what you do is you silence that person. You silence them. Biblical confrontation says, "Hey, someone, someone's caught in a transgression, you restore them. You build them up. You have their best interest at heart. A- and in the Greek, that word restore it it carries the connotation of like mending if you will the resetting of of a bone like a a dislocated bone if any of you guys have ever dislocated a shoulder before you'll know that having it reset is never a fun experience right it's not something that you want to go through and yet it's it's required in order for (laughs) it's for in order for full healing to to happen and ultimately for restoration to occur. And so if if that's the concept that Paul has in mind, I want to ask us the question, in this kind of confrontation, what specifically, what specifically is it that we are restoring them to? What's being restored in this person that we're confronting? And what it is, is that you're restoring that person back into right fellowship with God. Because similarly to a dislocated bone, sin moves us into a state of dislocation with God. And and I want to be crystal clear here, I'm not talking about like losing your salvation, but I am saying that there is a fracturing or a jarring of fellowship, a distancing with God that occurs through our sin. And so the restorative confrontation that Paul is calling us to here is to relocate that person back into right fellowship with God, which means that this kind of confrontation, if done correctly, if done correctly, should always be for the flourishing of the individual that we're confronting. It's always for their good. So then the question naturally becomes, well, how do we do it right? How do we do this correctly? Because more often than not, I think that confrontation is probably done poorly. I mean, probably all of us in this room can recall at least one instance in your life where someone confronted you and it wasn't handled well. You walked away from that feeling like, oh my goodness, uh, that person said this and it was really mean what they said. And don't get me wrong here. It's not gonna be easy. Like relocating a bone isn't easy, but it's gonna be healthy. It's gonna be for your good. Uh, so how do we confront others in a way that builds them up rather than tears them down? Let's look again at the verse. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And remember, there's a warning included here. We read it in the next sentence. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So, so what ingredient is critical for this kind of God-honoring confrontation? It's gentleness, right? One of the fruit of the spirit. Nathan talked about this last time. And what do you think Paul means by that? What does he mean by in a spirit of gentleness? Well, what I would put before you that Paul is referring to by gentle confrontation is a loving rebuke filled with humility that says I'm equally susceptible to the same sin. I'm equally vulnerable to the sin, to the transgression that you're in. A- and the reason why I would argue that you have to be armed with this kind of humility that says y- their sin is not beyond me is because of the warning, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. What type of what type of person doesn't doesn't keep watch on themselves? It's the p- the person who doesn't think that they need to. Why? Because they've They've graduated from the sin of others, right? I, I've moved on. I've, I've matured past that. I no longer struggle with that, and thus I can relax. But guys, here's the thing. As long as you think that the the sin that they're committing is beneath you, or perhaps, you know, the thought just comes in your mind, man, I would never do that. I can't believe what he did. Did you hear what w- that she did that? I can't believe that. Uh, as long as this is our thought process, we'll never be able to carry out this kind of of God-honoring confrontation and 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 you know what the root of this kind of mentality is? It's it's pride, right? That's what's going on. And if you allow if you allow pride to creep into your heart, during this confrontation, what's gonna happen is that you'll see someone caught in a transgression and the honest thought is gonna be, man, that person is such a mess. Thank goodness that I'm not like them. Thank goodness that I don't struggle with that. And rather, it's the prudent or the wise person, the humble person that keeps watch on themselves. that says, I don't trust myself about a year and a half ago, I had the privilege of getting to to marry my my best friend, Claire. And over that last year and a half of marriage, I've realized new sin patterns and weaknesses that I had no idea existed when I was a single guy. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is that as I've grown, rather than becoming more at ease, more comfortable, with the intentions of my heart, as, as I've gotten older, I've actually had to do the opposite, become more alert, more on guard, because I know that my my sinful heart will try everything it can to get what it wants. Don't allow it. Keep watch on yourself. And, and before, we, before we put this into practice, kind of look at how we respond to this truth, I want to quickly address what I would imagine are two potential maybe pitfalls if you will two slippery slopes and i'm a i'm a visual person so hopefully hopefully this will help you but imagine if you have a spectrum and then in the middle of that spectrum is this kind of confrontation it's god honoring it's biblical it's in a spirit of gentleness and then extending out of that are two slippery slopes that we naturally gravitate towards we naturally deviate towards, and the first one, the first kind of slippery slope is, well, Asher, I I really don't want to do this, and here's why, because we're talking about confronting others on their sin, and that sounds like judging to me. That sounds judgmental. It sounds like, hey, I'm, I'm judging that person's sin, and I know what the Bible says. Don't judge, or else you will be judged yourself. I don't want to have any part of that. I totally agree with you. I agree, let's not judge one another. But here's the thing, I would argue that this isn't judging. And the reason for that is because judging is easy, but restoration is hard. Judging is, it's easy to judge. It's hard to restore. Um, All the judging is is just the diagnosis of a problem, right? And it's easy for a doctor to diagnose the malady, but it's much harder For them to perform the restorative surgery to heal that patient. All it is is I make, I make a condemning opinion when I, when I'm judging someone, I just make a condemning opinion about that person in my head. And then what's my response? I generally go and I tell anybody other than that person. And we got to ask, how does that help them? It doesn't, right? It it doesn't help them because judging always has my interest at at heart, my interest at mind, but restoration has your interest at mind, your interest at heart. So Paul, what Paul wants us to do here is actually tremendously more difficult than judging. It's where you humbly step out of your comfort zone to go and engage with that person and you do it in a gentle way where your end goal is their best interest. The second slippery slope. Rather than trying to kind of dodge the command on this side, this slippery slope occurs due to an unhealthy over-eagerness, if you will, an over-emphasis of this kind of confrontation. You know, Paul has just said, hey, I want you to go talk to people about their sin. And may- maybe you're in here and you've been listening to that and you've just been, mentally making a list of everyone that you can't wait to drop the sanctification hammer on uh, when when we get out of here. Um, And I want us us to stop and just consider something for a second. Ask yourself this question. How does God convict me of my own sin? Because you'll notice, most likely, you probably didn't drop dead the last time you sinned. God probably didn't strike you with lightning the last time you sinned. If, if that's been your case, come let me know. I'd love to just hear how that works, honestly. That'd be really fascinating, but probably you didn't, God didn't immediately j- have judgment occur on you the last time that you sinned. And, and sidebar here real quick, God's without sin. Uh, unlike us, which means that he doesn't have to bring us to repentance. He doesn't owe us anything. A- as sinners, we're guilty where we stand, which means that it's only by his grace that he gives us another day at all. That said, more often than not, the way that God chooses us to confront us is, is like this. Romans two four says, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. How does he do it? He does it with kindness, with gentleness. So, if God, who is holy, pure, completely without sin, brings us to a place of repentance with kindness, how much more should we who are sin- sinners be gentle and kind when confronting others? So, on one hand, we can't we can't kind of dodge or or shirk this responsibility under the guise of it being judgmental. But then on the other, we should not be overly eager to correct those around us knowing that God is the one who sanctifies. And that word sanctifies, it just means um, being made more like Jesus, being made, conformed more into the image of Christ. God is the one who accomplishes that. It's not us. And as much as he's doing that work in the other person, our mentality should be, neither am I perfect, and by his grace, he's doing a similar work in me. How do we respond? What do we do now? Two points of application. Number one, check yourself for pride, and arm yourself with a humility that says, no sin is beyond me. Just, just ask yourself the question, why do I want to confront this individual? Is it to feel kind of morally superior or because I think that I'm morally superior than them? Uh, or, or is it because I really have their best interest at heart? I really want them to, to be restored back into right fellowship with God. Check your own life. Just, you know, examine yourself. See if you have any blind spots that maybe other people see. It, it's almost always easier to see the sin in others than, than your own sin. You know, if you ever got something like stuck in your teeth, everyone can see that except for you. It, it can sometimes be like that, where, where other people have an easier time seeing it than we do. So a good self-examination can, can prove healthy. Second application, prayerfully and humbly. Seek the restoration of others. So while keeping diligent watch over your own motives, now take your eyes and look around. Look around you. See if there's anyone who's caught in a transgression, someone that God is calling you to step out of your comfort zone and lovingly confront them with their best interest in mind. And and just to make this super practical, I would even encourage you just this afternoon, I know football games are going to be happening and stuff, but this afternoon, just spend some time in prayer. Come before God in prayer. God, is, is there someone who uh, who I see caught in a transgression that I've kind of, you know, turned a blind eye to, really don't want to confront them, who you want to use me as an agent of restoration in their life? Just just ask God to open, open your eyes to that. And if there is, then at the right time, Go and engage with that person. Oh yeah, I know we spent about 20 minutes here on attribute number one. Don't worry, we're gonna really pick up the pace as we continue on. Attribute number two, the spirit-filled community patiently shoulders the burdens of others. Uh, Let's read verse two of our passage. Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So small yet, so much there as i've been thinking about this this second exhortation here the i've been thinking trying to think through a metaphor and the one that has come to mind specifically in regard to the concept of a burden or something of immense weight is these large farmhouse tables back there nathan's sitting at one of them uh there's two farm tables there there's one kind of in the porch area i don't know um if you guys have ever come to Common Grounds just when it's operating as a normal coffee shop, you'll have seen these farm tables here in the middle of the room, two and two. On Sunday mornings, the ops team comes in pretty early, like 7.30 or so, and they flip the room to get it ready for the worship venue here. And obviously what that involves is moving out the furniture, and it means moving these farm tables. And and I don't know this for sure, but I would guess that these tables re- weigh around like 300 pounds or so, like they are extremely <laughs> heavy. And, and let's create a hypothetical. If, if you see someone trying to move this table on their own and you think, well, well h- I wanna go help them, what is the way that you can be of maximum benefit in helping that person? We don't even need to think about it, right? It's not a, not a trick question. You go to one side, they're on the other, you pick it up from the two ends, you move it. It's really as simple as that. Mathematically, what has occurred? They went from carrying 100%, they were trying to move 100% to now 50% because you incurred the other 50%. Part of that burden fell on you. So so why do I say that? Because in order to accomplish this kind of camaraderie that Paul is talking about here, you're not gonna be able to carry someone's burden without incurring part of the weight of whatever it is that they're going through, which means that it has to be a sacrifice. It must require a cost from you, right? Whether that's time, energy, comfort, resources, you name it, in order to ease the load of someone else, you must let some of that burden fall on you. Now, if you're helping if you're helping carry the burden of others, eventually, it's gonna get exhausting. And notice how Paul doesn't put a time limit on this. He just says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And then he just moves on. He doesn't say, bear one another's burdens and then, you know, if they're still burdened by that after like, you know, six months or a year, you're totally good, bro. You keep moving. He doesn't say that. Why? Because I, I don't think that there's supposed to be a time limit. I, th- I think it is I- indefinite here and, and and if you're doing this um, or actually let me back up because this, you know some burdens th- the quantity of things that could fall into that definition is pretty broad, and some might last for a day or a week, but then other burdens just seem to go on and on and on. And if you're helping to carry those, eventually you will run out of energy from carrying their load. And, and what's gonna happen is you're gonna wanna slip out from under that yoke, probably quietly, slip out from under it, leaving them to continue carrying it on their own. So what's the fuel? What do we need to sustain us when their burden starts to weigh heavily on ourselves? and we're tempted to let go. Let's look at the second half of the verse. Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's such an interesting word choice that Paul used there because he spent the last five chapters of the book exhorting the churches throughout Galatia to not turn back to the law, don't go back there, don't turn back there, and here he chooses the rhetoric, fulfill the law of Christ. So what does he mean by that? John 13, 34, this is Jesus talking to his disciples shortly before his crucifixion, and he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. What's a law? It's essentially a command, right? Do this, don't do that. That's pretty much what it is. Uh, Jesus says a new command or a new law I give to you And the law is love one another, and the motivation behind this law, just as I have loved you, now you go love love others. Because I've loved you, now you love. My love for you is supposed to overflow out of your life. So how are we refueled to self-sacrificially love others long after we've run out of energy of carrying their burden on our own strength? It's by fixing our minds on what has already been done for us. And here's what I mean by that because I don't want us to have the mentality of, well, Paul's making a command here. I guess I have to do this. I guess I've I guess I don't have a choice. I've got to help carry my brother or sister's burdens. Rather, our mentality should be, man, praise God that I get to praise God that I get to be able to shoulder my brother or sister's trials and I mean that literally because the reality is is that there was a burden in your life that you couldn't carry and that burden uh someone saw the need and so they carried it for you and that burden is your sin and if you are in Christ then that means that Jesus has taken that burden upon himself uh, that debt that you couldn 't shoulder, and he said i 'll carry that, you can 't carry it, it will trush, it will crush you, but I can. and he took that burden of our sin and he nailed it to the cross, where he died in place of you and me. and then he rose from the grave and is seated today at the right hand of the Father, where he continues to offer the hand of carrying your burden to any who would surrender their life to follow him. So quite literally, praise God that we get to be able to shoulder the burdens of others because the only reason why you and I can at all is because Jesus took our sin upon his shoulders. So in light, in light of the overwhelming lightening of our own burden, Let us follow his supreme example and be proactive in shouldering the burdens of others. How do we respond? Two two really quick things. Number one, fix your eyes on the magnitude of God's grace for you. Fix your eyes on what God has done for you in your life. He had grace for you you that you and I didn't deserve or earn. And yet according to his mercy he carried the burden of our sin. And then number two, out of that gratitude for what Jesus has done, now let's look around. Again, look around us. Are there people in your life, in your you know sphere of influence that you have, who are burdened, who are weighted down by something? And if so, think of some ways that you can lighten their load. A- and And just to make this really practical, I would encourage you, Not to just shoot them a text and say, hey, bro, heard that you were struggling with this. Let me know if there's anything I can do. That's that's not a bad text, but it's not the best. And here's why. More often than not, I would guess that that person is going to say, thanks for checking in. I'm good. Appreciate it. And the reason for that is because they probably don't want to inconvenience you. So rather, what I would, I would encourage you to do is think of some ways on your own that you could be a blessing to that person. You know, put yourself in their shoes. Hey, if I were them weighted down by this thing, what would be a blessing to me? Think through those ways on your own and then go and put them into practice. And, and in doing this and, and carrying, lightening their load, you will fulfill the law of Christ. okay. Finish the first two attributes of the spirit-filled community. Here we go. Attribute number three. The spirit-filled community is a comparison-free community. Verse three of chapter six. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Uh, the thing that catches my eye right off the bat with this section is the if anyone thinks he's something when he is, when he is nothing, and, and it's a little bit incognito here, but, but what Paul is doing is he's just leveling the playing field and saying, hey, guess what? We're all nothing. All of us are nothing. And, and he's not talking about nothing in the sense of like without worth, not talking about nothing as in like you have no value, Genesis chapter one, God creates humanity in his own image and thus with value. Rather, the uh, something when you're nothing that Paul is talking about here is a kind of self-exalting pride that stems from comparing yourself to the shortcomings of those around you. And we see this in in the next verse, verse four. He says, but let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone. Test his own work, and then your reason to boast will be in yourself and not in your neighbor. And maybe you're like me. I was a little bit confused the first time I read this because it really sounds like we're supposed to be ignoring our neighbor and actually boasting in our own accomplishments and what we've done, which seems a little bit antithetical to everything we've discussed thus far. It is. And the kind of boasting that boasting in our neighbor actually that paul wants us to steer clear of is to say um it's it's a type of bolstered self-righteousness that occurs at their expense at the expense of your neighbor it's to say hey your moral shortcomings make me look better when i stand next to you i shine that's that's really what it is um let me tell you a quick story that jesus shares this is in Luke chapter 18 we're not going to have it on the screens I'll just I'll just paraphrase it for you here but I'd encourage you to go read this Jesus sh- shares the story of these two two guys one's a Pharisee and one's a tax collector and he says that both men go up to the temple to pray one day and he starts with the Pharisee the Pharisee goes up and he starts praying and he starts his prayer Really, just by thanking God for all of the people that he knows who he's better than. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like this joker over here. Thank you that I'm not like him. Thank you that I'm not like this person. And then he notices the the tax collector and he says, Oh, yeah. And thank you that I'm not like that guy. Thank you that I'm not a screw up like him. Thank you that I'm not a tax collector. And then the camera switches switches over to the tax collector and, and just a little context tax collectors in this in this society they made a living really through the extortion kind of by by cheating their fellow jewish citizens. so not a not a good guy but the tax collector realize what he's doing he's going up to the temple to pray and he he doesn't he doesn't follow the pharisee up to the top he, he hangs back and you get the picture that there's some some shame there There's some some guilt. And he doesn't, he can't even look look up to heaven. But he's just standing there and he prays one one simple line. God have mercy on me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus concludes the story by saying both men go home. But only one of them is justified before God. And let me me just ask, what's the difference between these two? What was the root difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector? To put it simply, the tax collector had a humility which evaluated himself in light of God's standard. He addressed himself in light of God's standard. He knew that he was a sinner, he didn't try to get out of it, he just owned up and he confessed, I'm a sinner, God have mercy on me. This is the exact opposite of the Pharisee, right? He, the Pharisee exalted himself by comparing his own morality not to God but to those around him. Self-righteousness manifested by comparison. And guys, here's the, here's the nasty thing about comparison. When all that I can do is compare myself to someone else, it will prevent me from being able to love them. Because all I can do is use them to make me feel good, right? And granted, I can still be nice to that person, like I can, I can totally still be cordial around them, but as soon as there's a conflict of interest, as soon as doing something that's for their, their best interest conflicts with what I wanna do and building me, I'm gonna sacrifice their interest for mine. That's how it goes. Uh, You won't be able to love the person that you're comparing yourself to in a way that has their best interest. And this kind of love, this kind of self-sacrificial, Christ-empowered love for others, is the axle around which every single facet of the Spirit-filled community turns. How do we respond? What do we do in light of this? Two, Two quick ways. Looking at again at verse 4, Paul says, but let each one test his own work. Let each one test his own work. So, number one, test your own work. How? What does that look like? If you glance in your Bible just a handful of verses back, you'll find, to what Nathan talked about last time, you'll find that list, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So, bottom shelf, just check yourself to these. What comes out of you? What comes out of you in regard to situations? um, Let's say, for instance, you know, someone hurts you, someone does something to offend you, how do you react? Is it love for that person that comes out, patience towards them, uh, kindness and gentleness, self-control in how you respond, or is it anger? around you says, hey, that person hurt you and therefore you are justified to be angry with them, you stay true to God. There's only one your own work is the fruit of the spirit being produced when you fail it spoiler alert you totally will Uh, on this side of heaven God is in his mercy still refining us which means that we're not perfect logically that makes sense you know if you're perfect then thus you don't need any refining and as long as we're on this earth sin is still going to have some the Spirit doesn't come out To the Spirit, well, from the Spirit reap eternal life. What does he mean by God is not mocked? What Paul is saying here is, you can't fool God. You see, you can fool your friends. You know, you can you can trick them. You can pull the wool over their eyes, but that's not going to be the case with God. You're not going to be able to trick God. No one is going to be able to spend their life investing, you know, living how they want to, and, and then at the end of the day, at the end of your life, expect to reap eternal life. That That's not going to happen. It's as consistent as a natural law. A- and what's what's interesting, what I mean by natural law, you know, just natural laws in, in the world here, none of us would ever doubt natural laws. Like Like none of us woke up this morning thinking, that that did happen. We'll we'll have an interesting conversation. Uh, But none of us doubt that. And yet Paul writes, heaven Thank so- question that I want to leave you with as we close our time, really simple, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is a life spent following the Spirit, sowing to the Spirit, surrendering your life for Christ, is it going to be worth it? Because the reality is, is that it will be hard. Sowing to the Spirit, following Jesus, it is difficult. It won't be easy.